0: Morning, Christchurch. Today is our fall kickoff. You probably saw it when you were walking in. In fact, many of you might have already stopped and had some of the fall kickoff festivities, maybe a snow cone or there's secret barbecue out there that somehow showed up that maybe you got a little bit... Of a plate when you walked in, but it is for us fall kickoff, which is sort of our like the line that the church steps over to prepare to enter uh, the fall. For most people, it is school and school starts and you're in the fall. Uh, For us, fall kickoff is uh, kind of our starting point for going into the fall. And so after the service, um, be sure you'll go back to the backyard, and there'll be places uh, to visit back there, snow cones, like I said, and small group leaders to meet with. Um, also, when you came in, you probably saw a, uh, a small group flyer. You might have one in your hand. Um Inside it, there's a save-the-date card. I want to just call your attention to a couple of things. This is, um, imagine that you just got this from Christchurch in the mail. It's like a save-the-date for a wedding, and you take it, and you're going to put it on your refrigerator when you get home, because it shows you uh, sort of the outline, the calendar for the rest of the semester here this fall. And I want to call your attention especially to one point, parish retreat. Parish retreat will be the last weekend of October, October 28th through 30th, and um, one of the most important things that we do as a community, in fact, so many people say who are new to Christ Church, that the most impactful thing they did was parish retreat, this weekend away where there's silliness and games, but also study and a chance to just be with one another. So um, mark that on your calendar, and, um, and it's helpful also to be able to see what else the church will be doing this fall. Also this fall, starting today and going all the way till October 23rd, the week before parish retreat, we are going to begin a new sermon series on the book of Revelation. And you might wonder, why are we studying Revelation? When our rector Cliff entered sabbatical back in March, he gave me a list of items uh, to do while he was gone, things to, to work on or to be aware of, and one of the things he asked was that... That I would lead us through a book of the Bible as a sermon series. And over these past few months, in his absence, I've been getting to know this congregation, Christ Church, which I've, I've been a part of for over four years. I've been getting to know you at a deeper level and praying on your behalf, Lord, what would you want us to study? Not just for information, but for holy transformation for this whole parish. And for a while, I was thinking about uh, the book of James, New Testament letter that so many of you know, and James is wonderful. You read it, and it's kind of a call to action, a a call to arms. Um, Maybe the, the downfall, though, of James is sometimes we can unintentionally read it and get this sort of do more mentality, that God really loves us if we just do more. And I thought that's probably not where we're at as a community right now. I thought about, actually, the last few years and of the challenges that American churches have faced, almost all American churches, but also this church as well, faced challenges with the pandemic, of course, but it's coming out of that, lockdowns, mask mandates, gun violence that we see, mental health concerns, racial violence, the repeal of Roe versus Wade, and I thought about this last two years, especially, and I thought... Um, Many churches in America, and ours included in this, have gone through what might feel like a desert season, like just a long stretch of difficulty. And when you think about deserts in the Bible, your mind probably goes quickly to the book of Numbers, to that that journey out of Exodus and um, through the desert for 40 years. And I looked at Numbers and I thought, Lord, is this what we're going to preach through for the fall? And um, I'll be honest with you, I was a little daunted. I read through it all and the first nine chapters are a giant census. And I I just thought, I don't know that I'm going to be able to pull that into sermonic form uh, for our fall. Then I thought, is there another book of the Bible that deals with the church going through a difficult season and a call to faithfulness and there is and it's revelation revelation is written to churches in difficult times to individuals in difficult times and it is a call to holy living to faithfulness to putting Christ at the center of all things A few things to know as we're going to go through Revelation, we're going to be going scene by scene rather than line by line, so we're not going to read through all of it, but we'll choose nine different scenes that tell the overall story of Revelation. And I'm going to be using the NIV 2011 version of the Bible, and the reason is um, that particular translation does a really good job of going idea by idea as their translation model, not just word for word, but idea for idea, which will be really important in the book of Revelation. Today, we're in the first scene, and I'm going to call it the overture. Because just imagine like you're going to a symphony and this is the opening uh, words that you're hearing, the opening tune that you're hearing. And in this overture, every theme that's going to come out in the book of Revelation is present in seed form today. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 1. If you got a bulletin when you walked in, which by the way, this is the first time we've also done bulletins in about 29 months. So trying to restore some things since before pandemic. If you have a bulletin, uh, Revelation 1 will be an insert there as well. And we're going to look at three themes, these three themes that emerge in Revelation. Here's the first theme. Christocentric. Revelation is all about Jesus Christ. What does that word mean? It just means this, Christ the center. Revelation puts Jesus Christ at the center of the whole letter. We'll see Jesus presented in a number of different ways as the true descendant, the true king of David. We'll see him as the true word of God. We'll see him as a war hero, as a conquering war hero. We'll see him as one who shares the throne with God. And then John's favorite image, John, our author, his favorite image is we'll see Jesus as the slain lamb. Over and over again, John will draw us back to seeing Christ. In fact, look at the very first word of Revelation. First couple of words in verse 1. Starts like this, the revelation from Jesus Christ. And in the ancient world, there were no book titles. You know, there wasn't a cover to the book that you put on and and you saw the revelation of Jesus Christ, this is, this functions as the book title, the revelation from Jesus Christ. But it's, it's actually quite interesting because in the original language, this is a very ambiguous phrase. And it's deliberately ambiguous because you can read it in the original Greek in one of two ways. You can say this is the revelation from Jesus Christ that he gave to his churches. So he's speaking to John and then John's speaking to the churches. The revelation from Jesus Or you can also read it, it's the revelation about Jesus to the churches, that this whole message is showing us a true picture of who Jesus is, a real picture of Jesus. And I think actually John is doing this on purpose. He's saying both of these are true. This is a message from our Savior to the churches, and this is a message about the Savior to the churches. We'll need to see him, Christ the sinner, all throughout Revelation Now, seven times in Revelation, we're going to be given a unique vision of Jesus. And seven, as we'll see as we go deeper into this study, is an important number to our author, John. See, John um, is exiled on an island, and he has had a vision. He's had an encounter with God and seen this masterful vision. But then he sits down, and he composes poetically and artistically what he's seen. He doesn't write in the language of the Gospels, in sort of that biographical information about Jesus. Nor does he write like Paul, some of the philosophical discourse. He writes as a poet. He writes as an artist to imaginatively show us what he has seen. This number seven shows up all over the place. We see it that there are um, seven churches Seven judgments, seven seals, seven bowls, seven trumpets, seven representing this number of completion, and then seven visions of Christ that we'll see throughout Revelation. And Here's the first one. It comes in verses 13 through 16. It's a little bit outside of our reading, but still from chapter 1. It says, And among the lampstands was one like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. We see this first image, this first vision of Jesus, and he's described in seven different ways there. I put numbers uh, just to count them. His hair. His hair. His eyes, his feet, his voice, his right hand, his mouth, his face. And if you look at the center, again, thinking of John as this artist, the center of these is his voice like the sound of rushing waters. That's actually an Old Testament quotation about God from Ezekiel 43. That God's voice is like the sound of rushing waters. And what John is saying is that when you hear Jesus speaking, When you hear his words in this revelation to you, you are hearing the voice of God. Listen to him. Obey him. He is at the very center of this letter. He is at the very center of all of our lives, which is a word we need in every season of our life. If you feel like you have been over the last couple years, maybe the last few months, last few weeks, you just feel like I've been in a difficult stretch right now. I feel like I've been going through a difficult time. I, I have so much more desires that feel like they're just not being met. You need more than anything else a picture of Jesus. You need a vision of the resurrected, lifted up Christ, which is what Revelation will offer. The whole book is about him. It is all about Jesus. Which leads us to theme number two. Revelation is centered around Christ. It's Christocentric. It's also symbolic. Revelation is symbolic. And you've already seen this in the description of Jesus. It says, eyes that are blazing with fire. And you probably didn't imagine like Superman shooting his you know, laser beams out, a sword coming out of his mouth. And you probably didn't, you realize like Jesus is not just shooting swords out of his mouth, like some sort of video game character. Um, like you, you recognize there are symbols that are going on here and they'll be unpacked throughout the rest of the book. But symbols, they're the part of Revelation, the symbols of Revelation, they're what scare people away from Revelation. Because we tend to do one of two things: either one, we read the symbols and then we begin over-interpreting them, trying to line up. When Jesus shoots a, a a sword out of his mouth, does that mean that Russia and Ukraine are going to war in 2021? We start to over-interpret these symbols. Or on the other hand, we under-interpret them because we look at them and we look at Revelation and we're like, "There's a dragon. There's a beast. There's frogs coming out of the sea. And there's this number six six six. And I don't know what that's all about. So I'd rather just not read it and um and just ignore this part of the." Bible. And by doing that, though, you miss out on the picture of Jesus to the hurting church. And in fact, for me, I probably in most of my life have tended towards the over-interpretation model. I remember once when I was 18... Um, I had a major exam in school coming up and was not looking forward to studying. I, in fact, am a chronic procrastinator. I don't know any other chronic procrastinators. I know some of my best uh, sermon work is done Saturday nights around 9 p.m. It's just It seems like that's when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of me and <laughs> powerful things begin to happen on Saturday nights. And uh, so chronic procrastinator, and I had a big exam coming up for a test. And um, rather than doing the most obvious thing, which was opening a book and studying for the test, I went to a bookstore and um, found a book on the shelf about how Revelation, or how the end of the world is about to happen. And um, looking at Revelation, I pulled it down. I went to the cafe, got a cup of coffee, got my Bible, and I just started reading. And as the afternoon went on, I became more and more convinced that any month, Any day, any moment, I kept looking out the window, the sky is going to turn black and Jesus is going to come riding in. I don't even need to study for the test anymore, right? In the 20th century, get this, in the 20th century, there were roughly 66 mainline movements calling for the end of the world using revelation as a basis, all of which were wrong. Go on Amazon and type in Revelation and the End of the World, and you will find charts, books, a whole industry devoted to interpreting the symbols, trying to line them up with 21st century um, American life more than anything else. That's on the one hand, this overinterpretation of the symbols. On the other hand, again, we're afraid to engage Revelation. We don't know what to do with them. What should we do with these symbols? It's not even fear. It's just confusion. What do we do with these? So we ignore what I think is one of the most powerful books to those who are going through a challenging time because what we need is a clear vision of Jesus, which is what Revelation is going to give us. So let me offer a third way how to engage with these symbols, which is this. We ask first, not what do these symbols mean to us, but what do these symbols mean to John's audience? We try and understand what did he mean when he was writing these to his audience. And let me give you a few examples of this. Look at verse 7 in Revelation chapter 1. Verse 7 says, look, he is coming with the clouds. And this was taken up in the 19th century as a sign of the rapture, that we look to the clouds and Jesus is going to come back in the sky in this sort of way. But primarily and first, what this is pointing to comes out of Daniel chapter 7. It's one of the most famous prophecies of one like a son of man who is lifted up on the clouds into the presence of God. Actually, Jesus on the clouds is a sign that the one who has been crucified has now been raised and is ascended into the presence of God and he is reigning. Jesus on the clouds means no matter what your life feels like, no matter what this world looks like, there is a king who reigns with God in the clouds. It's a picture, actually, of his kingly reign more than anything else. And to understand these symbols, you have to know your Old Testament extremely well, probably better than you do, probably better than I do. You know the Old Testament, particularly around Ezekiel, Zechariah, Daniel, and Isaiah, the prophets. Because what John does, remember, the group he's writing to, they don't have a New Testament. So when he wants to write about the crucified and the risen Jesus Christ, He dips his pen into the inkwell of the Old Testament, and then he offers symbols that his readers would have been intimately familiar with, and then he just kind of plays with those symbols a little bit, just kind of modulates them just a little bit to show how impressive, how beautiful, how perfect Christ is. One of the first ways to interpret the symbols is know the Old Testament really well. Here's the second thing John's doing with these symbols is he's got cultural symbols that he's using. It's got these cultural symbols. And let me just kind of, um, let me show you what I mean about this. I don't know if any of y'all are country music fans um, in the room. Uh, I know, okay, a couple of people. Um, I grew up in uh, country music heaven, Nashville. And um, I went to school in Kentucky, which is like kind of the bluegrass angle. And I don't know what it says about me, but I just do not like this music. And... (laughs) I don't know if I'm resistant to things around me or, or what it is, but I've never been a fan of country music, so I can't validate whether it, who I'm about to quote is a good country musician or not, but um, Toby Keith, I've never listened to this song, but someone, someone pointed this out to me, and this has always stuck with me. Uh, not long after 9-11, okay, not, think, th- think back to 2001, 2002. Not long after 9-11, Toby Keith wrote a song called Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue, and I'm going to put these lyrics up on the screen, and I'm just going to read through them. And I want you to pay attention to the symbols, okay? It says, Hey, Uncle Sam, put your name at the top of his list. And the Statue of Liberty started shaking her fist, and the eagle will fly. When you hear Mother Freedom start ringing her bell, and it'll feel like the whole wide world is raining down on you, brought to you courtesy the red, white, and blue. And right, what do you see there? Uncle Sam. Statue of Liberty, The Eagle, Mother Freedom, Red, White, and Blue. For those of us who live in 21st century America, this song actually makes sense because you can remember, you can remember 9-11 and you can remember the feeling of just like kind of a national uh, patriotism that uh, was suffused throughout the country. And it totally makes sense that Toby Keith would write a song like this, trying to gather people together and saying, somehow our country's going to be okay. In fact, he's trying to say our country's going to do something about what's happened to us. If you did not know these American symbols, if you weren't familiar with this historical event of Nile, can you imagine giving this song to a first century Jew and saying, like, sing along with this and see if it makes sense to you? They'd be, so, they'd be utterly lost and confused. And do you see we're in the same position? Because when we read Revelation, there are cultural symbols going on that you have to know about, that we're just, it's not common uh, for us to talk about. You need to know in Revelation, there is a fear about an eastern power that is going to come and take over Rome and destroy the empire. The eastern empire of Rome was always uh, never as well defended, and so there's fear that that's going to be the gateway through which the enemy is going to come. You need to know that Nero is dead, and many people hated Nero, but many more loved him and wanted him to return. He was a very controversial politician, and there were rumors that he or someone like him would be coming back. You need to know that that famous Pax Romana, the piece of Rome which supposedly held the whole empire together, was really a false piece. It was won at the edge of a sword by subduing and murdering and killing thousands of others, and you need to know that the empire, the Roman Empire, is built on human exploitation, economic exploitation, and slavery. John is a poet using symbols to paint a picture and to tell us, wake up. Wake up to the real world that you live in. Flannery O'Connor, I don't know if you've ever read this uh, author before. She's a fantastic Catholic author, and when you read her, some of her characters are quite bizarre, quite odd. And one day someone asked her, Flannery, why are your characters so bizarre in your stories? And here, get this quote, because I think this makes so much sense. She wrote, for the near blind like us, you have to draw very large and simple caricatures. John is using symbols to wake us up, to wake us up to faithfulness. Yeah, there's prophecy and apocalypse, and we'll talk about that in later weeks, but the substance of the symbols is to wake us up to everyday faithfulness in Christ. If you try to ask Revelation, when is the end of the world, and which world, world ruler is the Antichrist, and when's the rapture going to happen, and, does Revelation point to the Russian-Ukraine war, or to anything else going on like that, you're asking the wrong question. Revelation's not trying to answer that, and I know it's not trying to answer that because you remember when Jesus and his disciples were talking, Jesus said, no one knows the hour when the the Son of Man will return. No one knows when that time will be. So what question is Revelation trying to answer? Namely this, that you, people of God, do you believe that God is on your side? See, Revelation is primarily a theology of power, and it's asking this question, who has power in the world? In all that you're going through in your life right now, as you look around the world, is Satan ultimately in control? Is culture and perhaps cultural agenda ultimately in control? Or is Jesus, slain lamb, the risen one, is he the one who has power and is in control? And Revelation wants to speak to you through symbols to say no matter what your life looks like right now or feels like right now, Jesus, the one on the clouds, is reigning. Which leads us to our third theme in this overture Revelation is pastoral, Christ the center, symbolism, and then John's writing pastorally. This letter is written pastorally to the churches. Why are we studying Revelation? Why are we studying it? Because the last few years have been challenging for church communities, for believers, for communities of faith. This is not the first time Christians have faced difficult moments. Always, since the beginning, there have been desert stretches. In fact, most of life, we anticipate that once we get a certain thing or once we get to a certain place, life will be better. Like once we get to the oasis, life will be better. But most of life, as all of you know, is not lived in the oasis. It's lived in the long desert stretch between the oases. I heard two stories this week that just, that struck me. First is a story from another pastor and he, uh, the pastor, he was at a committee meeting. And um, pastors were always getting put on committees, and we don't know why we're there and what we're supposed to do. But he's at a committee meeting. And um, earlier that week, he, uh, he's received a voicemail from a man, and um, he hasn't had time to check it, hasn't had time to call the man back. But this man's wife is on the committee with him. And as they're going through the committee that evening, discussing whatever it is that the committee might be discussing, he just notices that, yes, she's present, but she's also distant. She's absent. So after the, the meeting, he makes a point to come up and, and visit with her for just a moment. And um, he thinks what it is, is he's ignored the, the husband's voicemail. And so maybe she's a little upset with him because there's something that the family's wanted to communicate to him. And he goes up and begins to speak with her. And as he talks, uh, tears well up in her eyes and begin to run down her cheeks. The voicemail was a note to say that her husband is leaving her. And she showed up at the committee that night because she she didn't know what else to do, just to keep some semblance of life going. Here this wife stood, confused, hurting, and shocked before her pastor. Second story I heard was, uh, actually came through an article I read about the challenges that Christians face in the business world. It says, on Sunday, lives in the, in the church are ordered around these values, generosity, care, compassion being for one another. And yet life Saturday, Monday through Saturday, the primary ruling values in the marketplace are careerism, lack of loyalty, often cutthroat competition, sometimes greed. And for those who live in both spaces, it just creates this kind of fragmentation of self. How do I, Lord, how do I keep these two things together? Both of these stories point to this. Life is immensely hard life is immensely difficult we all fall we all fail we all face challenges we are hit unexpectedly by those who are close to us we have a question that we want to know is does god carry us does god carry us through these moments of life look at how revelation begins in verse 3 It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. When a letter was written in the ancient world, most of the the people, less than um, 10% of a population in the ancient world was literate. So what would happen is the letter was written and then someone would get up front and the sermon for that day would be the reading of Revelation. Someone would actually be the reader. They would say, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, the one reading it, and blessed are you, the Christians, who hear it. Blessed are you hearing this prophecy was written to these people. Who are these Christians? We find out in verse 4. To the seven churches in the province of Asia. Christians in cities with names we've heard before. Philadelphia, Thyatira, Sardis, Pergamum. Churches facing challenges of apathy affluence, moral compromise, and persecution. We'll talk more about these churches over the next two weeks, but don't let this point escape you. Revelation is not written just vaguely out there. It is written to seven churches going through a difficult time to show them no matter what they are going through, Christ is for them. Now think about your own life. Think about the challenges that you face in life right now. Maybe you have an illness or an injury that has kind of sidelined your plan for how you thought life was supposed to go. Maybe you have a situation that makes you feel set back or different or things aren't happening as you intended for them to happen. Maybe your spiritual life just feels stalled out and you wonder, why does it even matter that I try in this area? Why does it matter that I put forth effort towards holiness in this effort, in this way? Maybe you've recently felt rejection Maybe you have doubts about your faith or you've experienced a crisis of faith. Maybe you desire a more robust spiritual life. You're like, God, you have so much more for me and I just, I want it. I want to have that more life, but I can't seem to get it. What's the purpose of Revelation? Why did John write this letter? It's to give courage to the fearful. It's to encourage the weak. And it's to promise that the cost of following Jesus is always always worth it. Why we're studying Revelation this next nine weeks is because God has not abandoned us. We need to see a clear picture of Jesus Christ, and that is the overture, that is the opening lines, the opening chorus to what will take us through the next nine weeks of Revelation. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.